0: If you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to the very end of your Bible, the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation 21, verse 1 is where we'll start. Uh, If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, uh, page 1041 is where that is. Advent, which we are celebrating right now, we're on our fourth Sunday of Advent. Advent celebrates God making his dwelling with people. And in one sense, as you think about that, God has has always dwelled with his people. Uh, this This is his world. He made this world. You and I occupy space that God created out of nothing. But if you remember back, if you're familiar with the Bible, if you remember back to the book of Genesis, there was a special way that God was able to dwell with his people before sin entered the world. When humanity sinned against God, sin fractured that relationship. It created separation. It created enmity between God and humanity. And so since then, God then has to take the initiative to make his dwelling among us. And so as the centuries unfold, we see God dwelling with his people as the Israelites build the tabernacle that they carry around with them through the wilderness and into the promised land. Eventually, he dwells with his people in the temple that's built in Jerusalem. But as the author of Hebrews tells us, all of that is just a whisper. All of those are but shadows in the first advent though shadow becomes substance in the first advent shadow becomes substance we read in the gospel of john uh, chapter 1 verse 14 the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth So when Jesus steps into our world, it's no longer shadows of the presence of God. In him, as the Apostle Paul will say in Colossians, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And we sing about this in our Christmas songs. Jesus is our Emmanuel, which means God with us. But there is a still yet fuller experience of God making his dwelling among us that will come. And that's what John hears in Revelation chapter 21. So think of it this way. In the first advent, shadow becomes substance. In the second advent, substance becomes summation. Shadow becomes substance in the first advent of Jesus, Jesus born as a baby into the world. In the second advent, substance becomes summation. In the newness of heaven, the fullness of God is going to be pleased to dwell with with us, his people, presently and permanently. Uh, Not for a few years, not in a dwelling made by human hands. It will be the complete fulfillment of this promise that God has always made to be our God and to keep us as his people. And so Revelation 21 and 22 is really a picture of what that's going to look like. As we near the end of this series that we've been in these last several weeks about watching and waiting, it's important to include uh, this picture, I think, for the very same reason that John includes it in this letter, in this book that he writes, the book of Revelation. Because seeing the end of the story... Getting a glimpse, getting a preview of the end of the story brings comfort, uh, it brings courage, it brings hope to embattled men and women like you and me. And I don't know if you're feeling this right now or maybe to what degree you're feeling this is a better way to say it. Life in this world is hard. Life in this world is, uh, is wearisome. It's full of trial. It's full of tribulation. It tests our every resolve. It, it challenges every source of hope that we would look to, every source of endurance that we would look to. And so when Jesus pulls back the curtain a little bit and lets John see what God dwelling with his people forever actually looks like, John shares that as he writes this letter so that we, the embattled, might press on. That we might see not only God's future for the world in general, but we might actually get a little bit of a glimpse of God's future for us, his people who in the conclusion of this book are depicted as this beautiful bride of Jesus Christ. And so thinking about this text and and wanting to share it with you today, my hope is that we would not dismiss this as the stuff of fairy tales. Uh, Revelation is a hard book. If you've ever dabbled in the book of Revelation, lots of imagery, it's tough to navigate your way through. But as a friend of mine says often, it's not a puzzle book meant to be solved. It's a picture book. It's a picture book. And my hope for you is that you would see and believe in these words how Jesus himself sees you and who Jesus is making you to be as he continues his work of making all things new. And my hope is that this picture of what you and I as the people of God will look like in the end will also free us to live a certain way today and that it will stir in us and will sustain in us this anticipation that we're seeking to cultivate in the Advent season. That It will stir and sustain in us really a whole lifestyle of watching and waiting. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. I'm going to read Revelation 21 and the first five verses of Revelation 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have, will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, God, your vision of peace and wholeness comes to us in sweeping revelations like what John has written down here, also in tiny signs of hope. Pray that you would kindle our hearts, that we might be a hopeful people. We pray that you would keep us from growing weary of waiting so that we do not miss the glory of your appearing. Even so, come quickly, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. So what is the end of the story for the people of God? What's the end of the story? Four things that we'll see in this text. They are safe, they are whole, they are satisfied, they are stunning. They are safe, they are whole, they are satisfied, and they are stunning. So first, the people of God are safe. Uh, From the very beginning people of God, God's people, are described as as those who are safe. We read in the Psalms especially about God being our fortress and our present help in trouble, our refuge. He protects us. But whenever we see that in this life, there's always a caveat to it. The safety is our relationship with God itself. That's actually the best form of safety there is, to be known by God, to be in relationship with God but there's still danger everywhere. That's the caveat. There's still danger everywhere. There's persecution, there's hardship, there's martyrdom, there's pain, there's suffering, there's death. In the new heaven and the new earth, however, there's no caveat to this. There's no persecution, there's no martyrdom or suffering. There's no danger at all. This new city where God and his people dwell has layer after layer of safety and security. And hopefully you heard that as we read through Revelation 21. So it has walls, Really big walls. It's a huge area that this city encompasses. 12,000 stadia is about 1,380 miles. So if you were to take off this morning and head west, you would get to about within 50 miles of the Colorado border to account for that distance. And just as wide as it is, it is deep. But it's not only a big area, it's high walls. It has the same height as the length and width. In uh, antiquated warfare tactics, the way that you would uh, lay siege to a city would be to to build siege works. You'd build a a, a tower of some kind or some kind of ramp that you could use and put up against the walls of a city and then go over the wall and attack the people that were on the wall. So imagine having to build a ramp or some kind of structure as high as, let's say, for example, the Willis Tower, the old Sears Tower in Chicago. The Willis Tower is about a third of a mile tall. So you would have to stack 4,000 Willis Towers on top of one another to make up the height that's described of this new city, the walls of this new city. And they're not only tall and big, they're thick. 144 cubits is about 216 feet thick. On top of the walls, there are angels to guard the gates. And that takes us back again to the book of Genesis. When Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, God stations an angel there so that they can't come back in. Now there are 12 angels guarding the 12 gates of this new city. The presence of God is there. This new city is essentially a supersized version of the most holy place in the temple. Right? The most holy place was the part of the temple where God's presence actually dwelled. In this vision, though, John sees that there is no temple at all in this new city because God himself, present with his people, is the temple. God's presence with his people always has a protective element. It helps protect Israel from their enemies. So they would carry the Ark of the Covenant with them when they came into the Promised Land. And then also, before Babylon came and invaded and conquered Jerusalem, the presence of of God left the temple. But here's the other part of that. The temple didn't just protect the Israelites from their enemies. The temple also protected the Israelites from God. In the old Jerusalem, God couldn't dwell with Israel apart from the temple because God's holiness would have consumed them in their sinfulness. And that's why there's this whole system of priests and sacrifices and a high priest who once a year would go into that most holy place and make atonement for the people. But in the new heavens and the new earth, sin is completely eradicated. So God can dwell fully with his people without the temple protecting them. They don't have to be protected from enemies, they don't have to be protected from God himself because sin is gone. It's always light in the city, there's no night. That's because God himself and Jesus, they are the source of light. Biblically, uh, these images of darkness and light, darkness is associated with sin and danger. And so when there's no night or darkness anymore, that means all of that is is no more. And it says that God's people have his name on their forehead. Um, That's actually an image that recurs several times in the book of Revelation. What it means is that the people of God are sealed by God. That they are kept. There's a complete fulfillment that happens in this new heavens and new earth. They're kept by God. On top of all of that, what we read there in verse 8 or so of chapter 21 is that everything that is not righteous or everything that is not redeemed is thrown into the lake of fire. So Satan, the beast, the false prophet, these characters that make appearances in the book of Revelation really throughout Scripture, um, also death itself, mourning, pain, suffering, and all who persist in their rebellion against God, those whose names are not written down in the book of life. So what that says to us is that there is both the eradication of all sin, the the quelling of all rebellion against God forever. And on top of that, there are all these safety measures, like walls and angels to guard the gates and God's presence. Now, if that seems like overkill to you, it's because it is overkill. But the idea we're really supposed to get from reading What John writes down here in in Revelation 21 is that there is complete safety and complete security for God's people. So what does that mean for the church today? What does that mean for you and me? It means that you and I should press on with courage in this life. In our culture, really in all cultures, Christians can slip into something called a fortress mentality. We can wall ourselves off from the world, kind of live a parallel existence to people that are not Christians, people that don't really want anything to do with the things of God. Maybe we do some of that sometimes because we have a healthy anticipation for what the end of the story is. Right? We we long for this day and this kind of safety and security to be ours. But if we're honest, probably most of that fortress mentality is fear-driven. We're afraid. We're afraid that we're going to become hurt, we're going to become corrupted, we're going to be somehow negatively impacted by sin or by sinful people. But as we look at this picture of the new city, it reminds us that while spiritual safety is ours now through our relationship with God, the circumstantial safety comes from a future fortress and not a present one. So I want to ask each of us to think about where you'd be inclined to do this. Where are you overrealizing the future? Where are you overrealizing the future? Where are you trying to create a fortress now instead of watching and waiting for the one that is to come? All of us are likely to, in one way or another, or at least at certain times, become fearful and overwhelmed as we observe life in, in this world. Personally, uh, it's intimidating for me to think about what it's going to look like now and into the future to be faithfully present as a Christian in this world, in this society. Uh, For me, some of that's even vocational. So I make a living, I provide for myself and my family, put food on our table and, and a roof over our head by teaching and then seeking to live out certain convictions, some of which are increasingly viewed as backward, even damaging to humanity. Research that's been coming out from the Barnet Organization and some other uh, groups is saying that increasingly Americans are viewing Christianity as an overall negative impact, and, and it's dangerous. Religion itself, or Christianity specifically, is dangerous. Beyond that, as a parent and, I, and I'm guessing that many of the parents in the room can, can relate to this I can quickly become fearful for what kind of situations and scenarios my kids are going to face as they grow up. What's, what's life going to look like for them or for, for their kids? So the temptation might be for you and I to put our kids in a bubble or to make my home into a complete fortress or to view my church community as a fortress, right? To view you as the men and women of this church with me as as those who protect me from the world, quote-unquote, out there rather than stand shoulder-to-shoulder with me and engage it with me. But here's the thing. Just as we don't really perceive the grace and mercy of God until we really grasp the horror of sin, in a similar way, we will only perceive the worth of the safety described in Revelation 21 to the degree that we become personally acquainted with the the real danger that exists. So you and I might hear John's description of Revelation 21 and the safety that's described there, and we might think, yeah, okay, that sounds great. And some of us have had hard lives or hard situations where we've been in danger. and So we can say, yes, I really long for that. How much more would the 50,000 men, women, and children on the eastern side of Aleppo right now love this picture of safety? What would that mean to them in the midst of imminent danger? So we are called then to venture into this life, into this world with courage, trusting that that will only deepen our longing for and our appreciation of the safety that will one day be ours. So don't construct an artificial fortress of your own now. Wait and watch for the one that is to come. Second, the people of God are whole. They're not just safe, they are whole. In this new city, the number of God's people is complete. Uh, In the Bible and scripture, numbers are, are, are important and they usually signify something. And so the number 12 signifies completion. It's a number of wholeness. And here in this passage, we see that the people of God are complete by several references to the number 12. So the dimensions of the walls of this city are multiples of 12. 12 12,000 stadia, 144 cubits thick. There's 12 gates. There's 12 foundations. The foundations are made of 12 stones. So what we see here is there's actually incredible unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament that shows up here in Revelation. The city includes both uh, these 12 gates which represent the the 12 uh, tribes of Israel, and the 12 foundations, which represent the 12 apostles. And then to both of these groups is added this great picture of all the kings and peoples of the earth bringing their glory into the city. And that echoes what John has seen earlier in Revelation about a great multitude standing around the throne of God from every tongue and tribe and people and nation worshiping God in this new heavens and new earth. So the idea here is this that no one who's supposed to be here is missing. In the new city, no one who's supposed to be there is missing. Actually, we read in Revelation and other places, because of God's kindness and his loving patience, he actually delays this day. He delays the day of the Lord until the number of his people is complete. He's waiting for the day that that number is complete. But when the end does come, that means that we can be confident that the people of God are whole. Now, if the end of the story for the people of God is that they are whole. What does that mean for us today? It means that we can love people boldly and at the same time love people free of worry that we will somehow mess up God's plan. Have you ever wrestled with that? Have you ever struggled like, maybe I'm going to be the one that messes up God's plan for this individual person's life or someone else's life? As Christians, we're called to love people with our words. We're called to love people with our deeds. And we want... As those who are experiencing have experienced the same thing, we want other people to come and believe in Jesus and his finished work. But sometimes we can really adopt a a guilt motivation as we do that. It's actually a tactic that some people intentionally use when when they talk about sharing the gospel with other people or serving other people, and it might sound something like this. You don't want Jesus to turn to you on that last day and say, You know, Joe, uh, that friend of yours, I really wanted them to be here. I really was hoping they would be here. Too bad you screwed that up. Do you hear the guilt motivation in that? And it sounds ridiculous when we say it out loud and praise God Jesus doesn't actually say that to us. We couldn't, we couldn't stand up underneath the weight of that. But don't we, aren't we inclined to think that way sometimes? Aren't we inclined to act that way sometimes and operate as if that were the case? And so maybe we overthink things and we become paralyzed from actually loving people boldly Because we put so much emphasis on what will happen if I do or don't do this perfectly. If I do or don't say exactly the right words or or serve this person in exactly the right way. But the wholeness of God's people here at the end sends us out with freedom to love boldly and without that kind of worry or that guilt motivation. We believe that God has to be the one that that changes hearts, that that God has to be the one that opens our eyes to see Jesus as necessary and beautiful for me, for you, for anyone. That's how that has to happen. And so our well-reasoned words, our service of others is not ultimately what does that. And rather than demotivate our pursuits, rather than seeing the wholeness of the people of God at the end and going like, well, I guess it's going to take care of itself, this should actually ignite our pursuit of this. So, with your words, with your care of others, with your service, who can you love boldly today? Who can you love boldly this week? Who have you been paralyzed and overthinking so much in recent weeks or months, thinking, how do I engage with this person? What are the right words to say? Who can you love boldly, free from worry? Because in the end, the people of God are whole. Third, the people of God are satisfied. They're satisfied. We as human beings, we are created to find satisfaction in God. And that was true from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. We are image bearers of God. But as we rebel against God, part of that rebellion is to to begin to seek satisfaction in anything else. Seeking satisfaction in things that are infinitely lesser than God and asking them to fulfill longings that really only He can. common description of this that shows up in Scripture is thirst. We thirst. For things and we want our thirst quenched and there's this great account in the gospel of john chapter four where jesus is sitting with a samaritan woman and he says everyone who drinks of the water of this well they're going to be thirsty again but i actually have a kind of water that if you drink it it will well up in you to eternal life and you will never thirst again and what he's saying what he's inviting that woman to in that moment is that you will never be satisfied until you find your satisfaction in me You'll never be satisfied until you find your satisfaction in Jesus. In this picture we have in Revelation of this new city, we see the river of life flowing from the throne of God. It's this river of that living water. Eternal life and blessings and joy and satisfaction with God forever. And maybe you heard this as we read it as well. The tree of life is back in the new city. The tree of life, this tree was in the the garden. But once humanity sinned, God banished people from the garden. He specifically banished them from that tree because he did not want them to eat of it in their sinfulness and live forever in this kind of unredeemed, broken state. But in the new city, when sin has been eradicated, the people of God are again invited to eat from the tree of life. And it satisfies. That's what it says. It satisfies. It yields fruit year-round. Its leaves heal the nations. So God's people are provided for, they are cared for, they're satisfied. If that's the end of the story for God's people, if if satisfaction is the end of the story, what does that mean for you and I today? Well, it means that you and I can right now stop our futile search to quench our thirst with Jesus plus something else. Some of you are here and, and perhaps have never decided to put your faith in Christ, have never made any kind of commitment like that, you're maybe thinking through things or you have some kind of obstacle in the way of that, then I would invite you just to consider these words and, and Jesus' words specifically to that woman at the well, that, that there are, there's a kind of thirst that you have that will not be satisfied in anything but him. But for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we still often have this battle of wanting to add something to that in order to feel satisfied. Maybe it's financial security, Maybe it's enough vacation time. Maybe it's healthy relationships or the healing of a specific relationship. Maybe it's a sense of significance with what you're doing in your life. Maybe it's a good reputation. Maybe it's being able to see visible results from your hard work and your effort. I know that last one in particular resonates a lot with me. That's a recurring one, seeing visible results from my work. The other one that comes up a lot for me is Jesus plus affirmation. So it can be easy for me to only feel satisfaction when there are more people affirming what I'm doing than there are people that are not affirming what I'm doing. Shorthand, I'll call this like the thumbs up to middle finger ratio. And how many of each are you getting? <laughs> so when that ratio tips the wrong way, that's, that's usually when it exposes like, okay, I'm putting, my, I'm putting my trust in Jesus plus affirmation. So what I need in those moments is to drink from the river of life. Not the unsatisfying water of human approval. So what about you? What about you? What, in addition to Jesus, do you look to to feel satisfaction? What does it feel like you need? And if you didn't have that, apart from Jesus, you would lack satisfaction in your life. Think about that. Ask God to expose that in you. Ask God to rip that out of you. And at least let it it lead you to begin endlessly chasing the Jesus plus something to feel satisfied, to actually quench your thirst in Jesus. Fourth and the last one, the people of God are stunning. So they're safe, they're whole, they're satisfied, and then they're stunning. I hope you heard some of the beauty with which the bride of Jesus is described In John's words here, radiance like a most rare jewel, foundations that are adorned with jewels, gates that are gigantic pearls, walls and streets that are made of jasper and gold, and a river of life that's as bright as crystal. What John sees here, and this isn't the only time this happens, but it's definitely one of the the most vibrant times it happens in this book, it's so beautiful that it stretches the limits of language. It stretches the limits of what we can convey with, humans, with human words. But as he attempts a description, what it does is it helps us to see things the way they actually are. It helps us to see things through the eyes of God. And in this case, it helps us to see ourselves as God sees us. And what we see is that the people of God are genuinely beautiful in his sight. The people of God are genuinely beautiful in his sight. And we so desperately need to grasp how amazing that is, that Jesus reveals his bride as beautiful. Because the cost to make that so was infinite. It was his very life. It was giving up his very life in our place. And yet that's exactly the cost that Jesus has paid. And so what we see as he depicts this new city, as he depicts the church, his bride of Christ, with this kind of beauty is that Sons and daughters of God, you who have put your faith in Christ, you are jealously loved by God. You are loved by God enough to be made beautiful like this. If you've ever seen um, the movie Spanglish, came out several years back. There's a really powerful scene, at least it was for me personally. There's a, a manipulative mom in this well-to-do family, and she intentionally buys her daughter. Her daughter's name is Bernie, Bernie's overweight, struggling with her weight. She intentionally buys her overweight daughter a jacket that's a few sizes too small. It's like her way of trying to motivate her into fitting into smaller clothes and losing weight. So that understandably devastates, devastates Bernie. So the next day, while Bernie and, and her mom are gone, the family's housekeeper, whose name is Floor, secretly tailors that jacket so that it becomes the perfect fit. And when Bernie comes back, in her broken english uh, she she tells bernie to try the the coat on again and it's it's a really powerful scene it's um it's a sacred statement of the worth of a human being of the of the value of a person of the beauty that people have in them where floor changes the garment so that bernie can wear it jesus actually cleanses and purifies his people so he doesn't alter the garment he actually transforms you and me so that we can wear a bride's pure garment. And if you were to back up a chapter in Revelation, in Revelation 19, it says, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Jesus doesn't change the garment. He changes us so that the garment fits. And This is where the metaphor of the church as the bride of Jesus is really powerful. How how does a How does a groom see his bride on their wedding day? What kind of eyes is he looking through that day? Well, it's those kinds of eyes, at least to the best that we can perceive that. It's those kinds of eyes that Jesus has for his people. But even more than a human husband's eyes for his bride, Jesus doesn't just see his bride that way. He makes her beautiful. And what we see here is that part of Jesus coming in all of his glory and part of Jesus coming to make his name great entails making his people beautiful. He makes his church beautiful as a part of making his name great as he comes again. So if the end of the story for God's people is that they are stunning like this, what does that mean for the church today? It means that you and I too should love and cherish the church, the people whom Jesus has purchased and is purified by his own blood, those who he continues to purify until the day that he reveals them as this unblemished bride. If the church is beautiful in the eyes of God, why should those men and women who comprise the church be any less beautiful in ours? So here's the thing. You can't love Jesus and give up on the church. You can't love Jesus and hate the church, or some authors have put it, you can't love Jesus and hate his wife doesn't work that way i mean you can and people do it all the time but the minute that we begin to do that is the minute we have ceased to see the church through the eyes of god we've ceased to see the church through the way that jesus sees the church and there's a lot of damage that comes through the to the church through people who champion theories of, of how the church is supposed to be who love the idea of church but who lack the patience or love necessary for real people Right? Thank God Jesus doesn't treat us that way. He doesn't treat me that way or you that way. Thank God that Jesus doesn't treat some bloggers the way that some bloggers treat the church. But let's bring it even closer to home. How do you and I view the church? Are we angry with the church? Are we fed up with the church? Are we frustrated with the church? Perhaps you have some valid reasons for your frustration and your anger. But see the church with the eyes that Jesus has for her. Those who have been cleansed, those who are being purified, those who are worth it in the eyes of God. Because as we look at Revelation 21 and 22, this is where Jesus is going. This is what the people whom he has purchased with his own blood will look like on the day that he comes again. These are are the people for whom he is making and making into safe and whole and satisfied and stunning people. So Liberty Church, this is not the stuff of fairy tales. Revelation, as hard as it is to understand, is not the stuff of fairy tales. This is how Jesus himself sees you. It's who Jesus is making you into as he makes all things new. And so let this vision of the future transform you in the present. Let this vision of the future fuel a lifestyle of watching and waiting and pursuing the day that this will all come to be. May we venture forth with courage because in the end, the church is safe. And may we love boldly in word and deed because in the end, the church is whole. May we stop seeking to quench our thirst in anything but Jesus himself because in the end, the church is satisfied in him alone. And because in the end, the church is stunning. May we esteem each other as those who are jealously loved by God, those who are being made beautiful through the work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, what love you have for us. That you would not only create us in your image, but come after us as we run and rebel. That part of your making all things new is making us new and making us into these kinds of people satisfied in you, stunning and radiant, whole and and completely safe. Forgive us when we perceive your church as less than what you perceive it as. Forgive us when we esteem one another as your people with our tainted and broken eyes instead of yours. Pray that you would help transform us in the present to see who we will become to pursue that kind of life and to live in light of these truths today as we wait and we watch and long for this day that you come again thank you that you are making all things new thank you that you are trustworthy and true and thank you for the great price that you have paid to make it so i pray that you would Again, renew us in your grace, in your kindness, in the powerful work you have done on our behalf as we come now to this table. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.